In recent lessons, we talked about the church getting started in Antioch, which is in the northern part of Syria. And the church there was a famous missionary center and launching point, and Paul began and ended his first missionary journey there as Adam just filled us in. Paul and Barnabas embarked from there, and then they returned there. And also, just where we are in Acts, just starting Acts chapter 15, in the beginning of Acts, the the church was strictly Jewish, and we've seen that the message is starting to go to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10 and 11, Peter opens the gospel message up to the Gentiles, starting with the house of Cornelius, and then Paul in Acts chapter 13 and 14, in his first missionary journey, he preaches to the Jews first, but then he goes to the Gentiles and ends up converting them. And a great controversy arises at the beginning of Acts chapter 15 in Antioch, where Paul is, and it, it, the nice thing is it, the, the, the controversy arises and gets resolved all in the space of one chapter. But this story is actually important for us for several reasons. One of them is, if you understand Acts chapter 15, it gives you a tremendous advantage if you're reading parts of the New Testament, because this is a an issue that came up in Antioch in Acts chapter 15, was resolved in Jerusalem, but there are reverberations of this continue on throughout the New Testament and the lives of the apostles. The same problem keeps coming up over and over again. And Paul has to address it in his letters. So basically, Galatians, the whole letter, essentially, is is devoted to this same issue that we're going to talk about here. Parts of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2. This has a tremendous bearing on what's going on in Romans 2, I think. And then also some, some events later on Acts. So if you understand Acts chapter 15 really well, it will give you tremendous advantage. The problem that... A lot of people will take Paul's writings out of context, not understanding what is the issue that he is dealing with. I was driving around yesterday, uh, returning home, and I looked in the license. You know, people buy vanity license plates, and while this we're not exactly in the Bible Belt here in Boston, that it, once in a while somebody will slip a verse on the back of their plate. And on the plate in front of me, it said Ephesians 2.8. And so that told me automatically where the person is coming from. <laughs> They're probably coming from a Protestant background because Ephesians 2.8 and 9 is a famous verse, but people usually don't read the verses that come right after that, <laughs> which, is, which explain that usually it's taken out of context. So uh, if we understand Acts 15, it will really help us to, to read these other passages in context and understand what the problem is that Paul is addressing. Also, there are some unusual commands in this chapter that actually apply to Christians today that we don't think about very much, but they're, they're there for us, so we should know that, so that's helpful for us. And one of the really uh, wonderful things to me is just within the last few years, I discovered in this passage here a wonderful prophecy about the resurrection, which I had missed before for years and years. No one ever taught it to me, and I stumbled on it and then found that, sure enough, I'm not crazy. Some of the early Christians commented about the same thing. So we'll talk about that. As we've been going through the book of Acts, one of the things I wanted to do is to recreate what did Jesus in Luke chapter 24 when he opens the minds of the apostles and explains that all the prophecies in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms were fulfilled in his death, burial and resurrection and a lot of times I'll ask the question where does it say that the Christ would suffer and people will come up with one or two uh, uh, verses, passages in the Old Testament where does it say he's going to rise from the dead and, and a lot of times I get blank stares from people. Where's their prophecies about the resurrection? Well, this is one of them, and we'll talk about that today as well. So let's start off with the controversy in Acts chapter 15, and let's back up and read the end of, just for context, Acts starting in Acts 14, verse 26. Basically, where the teachers of the law come back into the story, right? There you go, yep. <laughs> Acts chapter 14, in verse 26, it says, From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. 
So Paul, this is the, the tail end of Paul's first missionary journeys of returning to Antioch. Verse 27, Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, that he'd opened the door of faith to Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Chapter 15 and verse 1, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about the question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. They caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. So, so here's the picture. Paul is saying, telling here's great news. We converted all these Gentiles. And the Pharisees who had become believers, Paul himself was a Pharisee. The Pharisees, a lot of times Jesus is opposing the Pharisees in in the Gospels, but some of the Pharisees became Christians. So these are the Pharisees who became Christians. He's telling them the good news, and then they're jumping in and saying, but don't forget, they need to get circumcised too, and all these Gentiles have to follow the law of Moses. Don't forget that part of the of the message. So this is... Does it teach it to learn? They really don't want to hear about Jesus. Well, now these, these actually are people who are, are uh, coming from a Jewish background who do believe in Jesus, but they think that they've got to also follow the law of Moses and get circumcised too. So let's continue here. The, in chapter 15 and verse 5, this to me is the key setup for everything that follows. This is what they're teaching. They're saying it's necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. So the issue is not just circumcision, it's circumcision plus the law of Moses. Do they have to do that or not? So the council is convened to... And the, basically the question is, what do we do with the Gentiles who are coming to faith? It used to be a Jewish church, now we have Gentiles coming into the faith. Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to keep the law of Moses? Or what do we do about that? Because, because uh, uh, that's, that was the Jewish understanding. And, and actually... You know, we tend to look down on the Pharisees as being bad guys, but let's let's consider the scriptures that they were reading. They, they, all they have is the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament at this point in time. So let's let's go back to Genesis chapter 17 to understand why would they insist on something like this? Why would they say the Gentiles have to get circumcised? So Genesis chapter 17 where circumcision is introduced in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am your God, be pleasing before me and blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you. I'll multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God and the God of your seed after you. Also, I will give you and your seed after you land. You're to occupy as a sojourner all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your seed after you throughout your generations. This is the covenant you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you throughout your generations. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. A child of eight days old shall be circumcised by you, every male throughout your genealogy. He was born in your household or bought with money from any foreigner not of your seed. He was born in your house and who was brought with money must be circumcised. My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. 
And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin on the eighth day, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. So, and I'm thinking, if this is the scriptures I have, and I'm reading this, and it says all the men have to do this, and it's an everlasting covenant, what would I be thinking? I think, well, okay, these people are coming to faith. They probably have to get circumcised too. So, it's not a crazy thing that these people are thinking. I understand. Even if somebody's wrong, it's a good idea to at least figure out how do they get there. Does this make sense? So, so I think it does. The council convenes to decide the issue. And let's read in Acts chapter 15. So this is the, the heart and resolution of the matter. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God, God chose among us that by, by the mouth, my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between them and us, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, with the words of the prophets, and with this the words of the prophets agree, just as is written. And he quotes from Amos chapter 9, <clears throat> verse 16. After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all of these things. Verse 18. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. <laughs> but that we write them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. From Moses has been throughout many generations, has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So let's stop there. A little recap. So there's a period of open debate and dispute and then there are, basically, there are three speakers who follow the group in general. So first, Peter gets up, and he recounts what happened in Acts chapter 10 with the household of Cornelius. He reminds them of the story that they were already familiar with about how the, uh, the Gentiles in Cornelius' household were saved with the visions and everything else. He says, you know a good while ago. So he's reminding them of something that they were already aware of. He says that in verse 7. And he says that God had acknowledged the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So that's Peter, as he's looking back on that event, he sees that in addition to the, the dream that he had, that when the Holy Spirit came down on them, that this was a confirmation. He says, just as happened to us, which I assume is referring back to the events at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. So this was a clear sign to him that God found the Gentiles could be acceptable and they were uncircumcised, so they were acceptable without circumcision. So that was he found that convincing. And it's interesting to me, he refers to the law of Moses as a burdensome yoke. In Acts chapter 15, in verse 10 he says, Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which we, neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? So, uh, it's an interesting way of describing the, 
the, the law of Moses and the requirement for circumcision as a burdensome yoke. And in the reading that David had before communion, one of the things he read was in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. He read part of that where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So a lot of people have the attitude when you become a Christian that the yoke is broken and the yoke is taken off and we're all completely free now. Jesus says, no, I have a yoke for you, but it's not a burdensome yoke. It is, it's not a bad yoke. And the word there is used, it says, and in, in the New King James says, my yoke is easy. And in almost every English translation that's out there, they follow the King James, which is actually following even earlier translations like the Geneva Bible 50 years beforehand. So the word easy. Now, David mentioned before, which is correct, that that word is generally translated. It's translated easy here, but generally it's translated elsewhere in the scriptures as being good or useful or beneficial. That's how that word is, the Greek word is, is translated. And I found, I was looking at almost all translations render it, it easy. The, uh, the old Catholic Douay Reims uh, says it, it's a sweet, my yoke is sweet. And the, the Wycliffe Bible says soft. So the, uh, maybe there's a little like a little a little padding on the yoke there. I don't know. So it's, it's, it's a soft yoke that you're carrying. So, but the, the picture there is generally good or useful or beneficial, and in uh, in the in the Septuagint, which is uh, also Greek, just to translate a few hundred years before the New Testament was written, and uh, one of my favorite Psalms in Psalm 34 or it's designated Psalm 33 in the uh, Bible's based on, on the Masoretic text. There's a, a famous line in there. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And it's the same word where it says the yoke is easy. You wouldn't say taste and see the Lord is easy. That's, nobody would say that. So it's, taste and see that the Lord is good or the Lord is gracious. So that's the, it's the same word that's used there. It'll give, give it a different sense of it. Now, I don't want to be too hard on the translators of the King James, the uh, other modern translators, for using the word easy there. The word easy has shifted over time. A lot of words in English shift over time. I, when I think of easy, <clears throat> I think of meaning requiring no effort. That's what I think of. Something is easy, it means it's, it's no problem, it's simple. It requires no effort on my part. It's easy. But the, the word has shifted over time. I like to carry around a dictionary in case I run into words that I'm not used to. Unfortunately, this is the, this is the one that I like to use. This, your pocket, this your is pocket my, one. I refer to this lovingly as my pocket dictionary. So this is... Uh, so I looked in there for... And no, it's, there's no Webster's 1828 uh, American Dictionary of the English uh, of the English language, and it, it's interesting to me because Webster was a Bible translator also, and he wanted to come up with a dictionary that would be really useful for people for for how words are used in everyday use and also how they're used in the Scriptures. So it was it was both. So it's a very practical dictionary for a society where everybody had a Bible in the house pretty much. So. The word easy in that dictionary there, and here are some of the, the terms that are included with easy. Free from pain, disturbance, or annoyance. That's one of the definitions. Of, I think that's the first definition provided. Presenting no great obstacle or not heavy or burdensome. So that's a little different flavor for the word easy than maybe what we're used to today when we think of it. So the, the, that's the picture, picture is that this is, that we take the yoke of Jesus on it on us. It is appropriate. It's good. It's useful. It's beneficial. It's not a painful yoke to bear. It's, it's a good yoke. So the idea that, that, that the yoke of, the burdensome yoke of the law of Moses has been replaced by a good yoke. It's not been... It's not that the yoke is broken and we have no, no yoke at all. And have to remember what Jesus says, the Christian life is not easy in the sense of, of how we use the word today. Jesus says we need to enter by the narrow gate. 
and uh, narrow is the gate and difficult the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. It is a good and appropriate and well-fitting yoke, but, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to face challenges along the way. So Peter, so after the general uh, debate takes place, Peter speaks, and then after Peter, Paul and Barnabas speak. And Paul and, Barnab Paul and Barnabas tell the story about how they had taken the gospel to the Gentiles, and as they were taking it to the Gentiles, God is performing all these amazing miracles. And we talked about that in the last time we're together. In Acts chapter 14, uh, it says in, in verse 3, it says, Therefore they stayed a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word by his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So Paul and Barnabas are taking the gospel of the Gentiles in Acts 14 on his first missionary journey, and God is performing miracles through their hands. And, of course, the most famous one in Acts 14 is they healed the man who had been crippled from birth in Lystra, which, which brings about a whole uh, wild chain of events after that. So they're saying, look, we're, we took the gospel of the Gentiles, and look what God did performing miracles in our hands. It's a confirmation that the gospel can go to the Gentiles directly. They don't have to... They, they're, they're uncircumcised. They didn't, uh, they're not following the law of Moses. And then, so after everybody speaks, and then Peter speaks, and then Paul speaks, and then the last, last up is James. He's, James, is, James is batting clean up here. He's, he's the last one up. And he makes the point that everything stated by Peter and by Paul, all the things that they had testified about was actually in fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. So he closes down the discussion. First we have the demonstration of the miracles of God, but Peter, but, but then James says, this is the fulfillment of prophecy, and that, that closes down the discussion right there. And he quotes from Amos chapter 9, as I mentioned before. And his conclusions are, the question was, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised and do they need to follow the law of Moses? His conclusion is, no, the Gentiles do not need to be circumcised, nor do they need to follow the whole law of Moses. However, there are four things that are contained in the writings of Moses that they do need to be taught to do. One is, number one, abstain from idolatry. Number two, abstain from sexual immorality. Number three, abstain from things strangled. And number four, abstain from blood. So these are the four things that he says that are in Moses' writings that they need to abstain from. I want to take a look at the prophecy that he quotes because there's more here than meets the eye. Let's take a look in Acts chapter 15, let's reread starting at verse 15. It says, And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. This is a two-part prophecy. Okay? It's a two-part prophecy. Think about this. He says, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. Okay. What is that talking about? And he says, after that, the rest of mankind will seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. So he says, after the fallen tabernacle of David is raised up again, that all who seek his name, all the nations, all the Gentiles, will, be, will, be, will seek him, will be called by his name. So, so James is focusing here on the second part of that. He says... He said, well, the, the, the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, has been raised up again. What's that referring to? Therefore, the, gen the gospel is now opened up to the Gentiles. They don't have to become Jews first. 
So his, his application is, is verse 17. It's the, it's the last part of this. And there it says, here it says, so the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Now if you go back in your Bible and read Amos chapters 11 and 12, Okay, I'm going to go back. I've got a Bible. The Old Testament is based on the Septuagint. I'm going to read what this says there. Amos chapter 9, 11, 12. And if you have a Bible that's based on Masoretic texts, like uh, King James, New King James, NIV, something like that, it's going to say something different. But I'm going to, re- I'm going to read to you from what it says, which is based on the Septuagint. Amos chapter 9, starting in verse 11. And, and my Bible, this is Orthodox Today Bible. In that day I shall raise up the fallen tabernacle of David, and I shall rebuild its ruins and repair its damages and rebuild it as in the days of old. That the remnant of men and all the nations upon whom my name is called will seek me, says the Lord who does this thing. So, that agrees with what it says in... That, that James is quoting from in the New Testament. If you read from the, the New King James, which is based on the Masoretic text, the second part of it says, it says, instead of saying, so the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, it says that they may possess the remnant of Edom. So it's a completely different statement in Masoretic text. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who does this thing. So the whole point that he's making here centers on the rest of mankind will now be seeking the Lord. That's the point of what he's saying there. Now, notice none of the apostles stand up at this point and says and say say time time out here. Okay, what is this? What is this bogus divergent translation you're reading from? Okay, my my Bible doesn't say that. It's talking about my Bible. It says that they may possess the remnant of Edom. So he so they're. Obviously, he's what he's saying is following Septuagint for the Old Testament, and and it it closes the discussion. This ends the case right here. So, um, so just just an observation. We've seen this a few times in going through the Book of Acts. So that's the reason why I like to read from the Old Testament based on Septuagint is because that's in places like this and a lot of other places, not everywhere, but in, but in most places, where the two texts diverge, that's what they're quoting from. So I want to read, follow what is James actually reading there. And if you look at an interlinear Greek, you can see that, uh, that, that those phrases match up pretty well. So, how James is understanding this passage from Amos he says, the fallen tabernacle of David has been raised up. Now the Gentiles will seek the Lord. So it seems to me pretty clear he considers the first part of this prophecy of Amos as referring to the resurrection of Jesus. The fallen tabernacle of David has been raised up. Uh, and it shouldn't surprise us because how many places in Scripture... Does the word tabernacle or tent or, or sometimes even temple been used figuratively to, to, to refer to a body? How many times? Uh, and, and many times in the scriptures, prophecies or other statements will use a word that can have more than one meaning. And you have to figure out which meaning it has. And another classic one we've run into before is when the scriptures talk about sleeping and waking up. Are we talking about natural sleep? Or are we talking about death? Is, it, is that used as a metaphor for death? Genesis 49, the prophecy, he lays down and sleeps like a lion, like the cub of a lion. Who will wake him up? Okay, that's a prophecy about the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Genesis 49, also Numbers 24, verse 9, uh, it's, it's repeated there. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 52. It talks about, uh, about uh, sleep 
and being woken up is a metaphor for death. And then Daniel chapter 12, beginning of Daniel chapter 12, it talks about those who will sleep in the dust of the earth and will be, will be raised up. So sleep there is obviously a metaphor for death as well. So, uh, and, and also, Jesus in the Gospel of John, at the t- when he's going to the tomb of Lazarus, he says, Lazarus sleeps, let us go and wake him up. And the apostles think he means natural sleep, but he's, it's a play on words. He's talking about figuratively about death there. So sleep and waking up are used throughout, throughout the scriptures as a metaphor for uh, death and resurrection. And the idea of a tabernacle or a tent being used as a metaphor for a person's body, a uh, classic example to me is 2 Corinthians 5.1. Let's turn there. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So this is referring to our body as being an earthly house. This actually reminds me of a uh, passage in Wisdom of Solomon 9.15. You could take a look at that on your own, but this is the same, the same illustration about an earthly house referring to our body. Uh, 2 Peter 1 is another famous one. Peter speaks about his own death poetically. 2 Peter 1.13 Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. So there he's using, speaking figuratively about the tent or the tabernacle as being his body. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.19 talks about our bodies a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, our bodies a temple in which God dwells. And let's also take a look at, in John chapter 2. Now with this prophecy in mind, let's go back and look at something we looked at in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 2, this is when Jesus clears out the temple. John 2.18 So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. Then they believed the scripture, and the word was Jesus had said. Okay. So Jesus says, destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. Um, now, something I really never thought about before this, this week in reviewing this, It says, verse 22, Therefore when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this to them. Then they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. What scripture? (laughs) What scripture? What scripture says that the temple will be destroyed and then raised up afterward? Where does it say that? Where's the prophecy about that? Amos chapter 9. And so I, th- I always thought, oh, that must be the prophecy in Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. But actually, this makes a whole lot more sense to me. The scripture that talks about this, and, and James is, is making the point. He's not teaching them about the resurrection. The idea is they already know that. And he's saying, he's saying that the tabernacle of David has been, the fallen tabernacle of David has been raised up. Now the Gentiles will seek him. That's the point that he's making there, building on what they already know. So, uh, early Christian writers talk about this prophecy in Amos. I I never heard anybody teach on this before, but Irenaeus, Irenaeus was a, he lived around 130 to 200 A.D., and he was a disciple of 
Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. So he's one human link removed from the Apostle John, who wrote John chapter 2, the story that we just read. So he, he talks about this prophecy from Amos in connection with the resurrection. This is from Irenaeus, from uh, uh, Proof of Apostolic Preaching. This is not in Anicene Fathers, a separate work. I'll put the references in the notes. It says, And he showed forth the resurrection, becoming himself the firstborn from among the dead, and raised in himself prostrate man, being lifted up to the heights of heaven, as the right hand of the glory of the Father, as God had promised through the prophet, saying, I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen. That is, the body sprung from David, and that this was in truth accomplished by our Lord Jesus Christ and the triumph of our redemption, that he raised us in truth, setting us free to the Father. So uh, there's another quote from the same work. That's from on page uh, 72. There's another work, quote from the same work, page 89, where he's talking about prophecies related to the resurrection. This is chapter 62. It says, Therefore, again, the prophet says, In that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen. Clearly, he's declaring the body of Christ. Born, as we said before, of David, as raised after the death from the dead, for the body is called a tabernacle. For in these passages, both that he who according to the flesh was of the seed of David, the anointed, would be the Son of God, and after his death he'd rise again, and he would be in figure man but in power God, and he would be judge of the whole world and sole worker of justice and redeemer, has all been declared by the scripture. So he's pulling several scriptures together and making that statement, but he's, he's the main way he's talking about is right from Amos chapter 9. So this is, this is you know, first, second generation of the apostles, and they're using this prophecy to explain that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is a fulfillment of that. Another quote from an early Christian writer, Methodius. This is in Anicene Fathers, volume 6, page 367. It says, For the term resurrection is not applied to that which is not fallen, but to that which has fallen, and risen again, as when the prophet says, I will also raise up again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. Now the much desired tabernacle of the soul is fallen and sunk down into the dust of the earth. For it is not that which is not dead, but that which is dead that is laid down. But it is the flesh which dies, the soul is immortal. So then if the soul be immortal and the body be the corpse, those who say that there is a re resurrection but not of the flesh deny any resurrection because it is not that which remains standing but that which has fallen has been laid down and is set up according to that which is written. Does not he who falls rise again and he who turns aside return? So he's talking about, he's demonstrating, so Methodius is talking about, no, we are bodily, physically raised from the dead just as it says here that you can't be raised up unless you're fallen down in the first place. So the death, there was a physical, it's a, 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 and what is falling down is the body. So he's using this to, to from a, a work called Discourse on the Resurrection, and I see Fathers, Volume 6, page 367. Um, so this is, to me, it's, it's fascinating. When we think about Luke 24, what Jesus said regarding the resurrection. Uh, the resurrection is demonstrated from the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 18, which we saw in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 7. The Lord said, I will raise up a prophet like Moses. That's from the writings of Moses. So we see the law of Moses. We see the historical book, 2 Samuel chapter 7. All the prophets from Samuel on have prophesied about these things. Actually, it's 1 Samuel chapter, uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, where it says, I will raise up a priest, which Peter alludes to in Acts chapter 3, all the prophets from Samuel on. That's the prophecy from the lifetime of Samuel. Acts chapter 2, where Peter is referring to the prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Paul does as well in Acts chapter 13. That he will raise up a king who will raise over the, who will reign over the eternal kingdom. From the Psalms, 
from Psalm 16, which Peter quoted in Acts chapter 2, and Paul also quoted, and here from Amos. So we have prophecies about the resurrection from the Law of Moses, the historical books, the Psalms, and the prophets. So it's basically it's covering the map here in terms of prophecies about that. I could throw in this is from the minor prophets. I could throw in more from the major prophets, Ezekiel 34, where it says similarly. The Lord says, in the future I will raise up, same, same word here, I will raise up a shepherd, one shepherd who will be all over all my people, even my servant David. So it's been again connected with David. So we say the law of Moses, the prophets, the historical books, the poetic books, and now even the minor prophets to confirm the resurrection of Jesus. So... Uh, another reminder that as we're going through the book of Acts we just keep collecting these wonderful prophecies, these gems that are in here as we see we see how the apostles spread the faith and how they read the Old Testament let's read verse 22 pick up in Acts 15 verse 22 so we see the conclusion that goes out then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter to them, the apostles, elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who were of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with the words, unsettling your souls and saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they gathered together the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets, also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. After they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So the four commands here, are abstaining from sexual morality, strangled animals, from blood, and from idolatry. And the one thing I want to focus on, thing, of all the things in the Law of Moses, of all the things in the Old Testament, in the first five books, why would you focus on these particular things? And one thing that this reminded me of was what God had told Noah long before the law of Moses was given and long before circumcision was given to Abraham. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 9. Actually, a friend of mine in British Columbia who listens to the lessons here, who is very interested in the Old Testament and, and, and Judaism, first suggested to me, he said, you know, this kind of reminds me of what God had told Noah about the prohibition of blood, that maybe God is rolling things back before Moses and Abraham all the way to the covenant given to Noah, from which all people are descended. Chapter 9, in verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Increase and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it. For the dread and fear of you shall be upon all the wild animals of the earth, all the birds of heaven, and all that move upon the earth, and all the flesh of the sea. I put them under your authority. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as I did the grain herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its lifeblood. Surely, for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of all the wild animals. I will require it, and I will require the life of man at the hand of his fellow man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, because I made man in God's image. 
So then increase and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it. So my sense is that before this time, people were vegetarians. They didn't eat meat. And then after the flood, God says you can eat meat also if you choose to. But uh, everything that lives, everything that lives shall be food for you. That would include the, all the unclean animals. The, 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 it would include the pigs and the reptiles and things like that, and the and the and the lobsters and the clams. All the things that you could not eat under the kosher laws of Moses, under the dietary laws. He says, every, you can eat anything you want, with one exception: you shall not eat flesh with its life blood. So you have to you have to get the blood out before you eat the animal, so you can't have blood. So this is a it's a requirement here. So this this unusual requirement seems to be a throwback to the earlier covenant that was given to Noah. And so my, my friend threw that out there, and I read that. I said, well, actually, that 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 seems reasonable. That seems logical. And then I found an early Christian witness that talked about this. In Epistle uh, uh, of Constitutions, there was a discussion about Acts chapter 15, and this is from uh, uh, Book 6 of the Nicene Fathers. It's in, uh, I'm sorry, it's in uh, Volume 7 of the Nicene Fathers, the uh, Constitutions of the Holy Apostles, Book 6, Section 3, Chapter 12. So this is a quote from that where they're talking about Acts chapter 15. Think about this. It says, Known unto God are all his works in the beginning of the world. That's we read that from Acts 15. Wherefore, my sentence is, we do not trouble those from among the Gentiles turning to God, but to charge them that they abstain from the pollutions of the Gentiles, from what is sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, from fornications, which laws were given to the ancients who lived before the law. Okay, so he's, he's quoting from Acts chapter 15 what James is saying. Say. So, which laws were given to the ancients who lived before the law, meaning before the law of Moses, under the law of nature? Okay. Enos, Enoch, Noah, Melchizedek, Job, and if there be any others of the same sort. So he's saying this is a more ancient law that was being passed down to them than the law of Moses. God was rolling back, perhaps similar to in, in the situation with marriage where divorce and polygamy were permitted, but then God rolls it back to Genesis, to the original plan is uh, becoming one flesh, but with uh, with your spouse and and uh, doing away with divorce and remarriage, while the spouse is still alive. So some takeaways for us for all this: uh, the prohibition on blood seems to me to be still in effect. It applies to the Gentiles, and it goes back to ancient times. It goes all the way back, at least as far as Noah. There's something very special about blood. The life is in it. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's uh, you know it's uh, uh, it's representing the body and blood of Christ. Uh, the blood has the life in it. And I think about when Jesus said, "You must eat my flesh and drink my blood, or you have no life in you." And that's why that was so offensive to people. So. Uh, I would say we shouldn't be drinking blood. All right, this is <laughs> don't drink blood, uh, don't eat animals, don't eat roadkill that has the blood still in it. All right, and a question that some people may have, I know some cultures they have blood pudding, they make things out of blood. I don't think we should. I don't think we should partake in that. What about blood transfusions? Okay. And, and I don't know. <laughs> so I don't know. It just says abstain from blood. This, my assumption means it's referring to drinking blood, but I don't. I don't really know. I can't. I can't say for sure. If somebody uh, uh, had a problem with that, then then I respect that. But I, my assumption has always been that it's talking about drinking blood. Uh, so just a few more concluding comments. Keep Acts 15 controversy in mind. When you're reading Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, when you're reading Galatians, this is what it's talking about. Okay, let me give you an example. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, famous passage. This was the one on the license plate. To understand what Paul's talking about in context. Ephesians 2, 8. 
For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Continuing on. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision made in flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, has made, he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So the statement says, by grace you've been saved through faith. You've been saved by grace through faith, uh, not by works that anyone should boast. So he, and then he's talking about circumcision and the works of the law of Moses right after this. So this is the whole idea is that there's the circumcision and there's the uncircumcision and through the cross we're both made one together and we don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to follow the works of the law of Moses in order to be saved. That's the context of the discussion here. This is the same problem where you have these two worlds that are clashing with each other. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow the law of Moses, but we can be through the cross. We can be unified completely before God. So this helps us. The backdrop of this helps us when we're reading Paul's writings. <clears throat> we can thank God that we are no longer burdened by the yoke that neither uh, Peter that, that, that Peter says neither their forefathers nor they could could bear could stand under it was an intolerable yoke that uh, we have been freed from we've been given the good yoke of Jesus Amen. that we can take on and we still need to avoid blood and let us keep looking for more treasures in the book of Acts for prophecies about Jesus to strengthen our faith and equip us to persuade others. Amen. Amen.